1: Hi there! Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm your host Carla Nappi. I just had the pleasure of talking with Miriam Soss about her book *Experimental Arts in Postwar Japan: Moments of Encounter, Engagement, and Imagined Return*, that came out with the Harvard University Asia Center in 2011. Now, this is a book that looks like that looks at moments in the arts in Japan from the 1960s to the 1980s, early 1980s, focusing though on the 60s and 70s. It's a book that spans experimental arts that range from experimental theater to film, video, photography, various forms of text, Uh, Poems, etc., etc. Now, even if though you're not a scholar of modern Japanese history or literature or the arts, even if you're not a scholar of comparative literature, or even consider yourself terribly interested in um, the experimental arts in modernity, this is a book that you can get a lot out of. The reason for that is that the kinds of contexts that Sass is writing about explore themes that are of potentially very, very wide relevance to those of us working in or interested in any number of fields. The kinds of themes that are dealt with in the texts that she's looking at, in the people that she's looking at and their work, range from the idea of the fragment, the relationship between time and language, the nature of identity and and the the collaborative, etc., etc. It's really wide-ranging kinds of themes here um, that just have frankly given me a lot of food for thought, um, and I enjoyed the book tremendously. We had a great time talking about it, and I hope you enjoy. Hi, Miriam. Hi. We're here today to talk with Miriam Sass about her recent book, Experimental Arts in Postwar Japan Moments of Encounter, Engagement, and Imagined Return. Now, this was a fascinating book for me to read. I work on material that's completely removed, you would think, um, from the setting of this book, 1960s and 1970s Japan, Experimental Arts, and yet there's so much in here um, that I think speaks so much more broadly to anybody interested in the humanities, the arts, um, um, and not just uh, in Japan and not just in East Asia. So, Miriam, thank you so much for talking with us about it today. And I'm really looking forward to talking with you. Well, thank you so much for interviewing me. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. So, Miriam, could you start us off a little by just saying a little bit about what brought you into the study of Japan and modern in, modern Japan in particular in the first place? How did you get into this field?
0: Well, it, there are always coincidences when you start doing something, but um, I was an undergraduate at Harvard, and there was a teacher named Tazuko Monain, who um, was a really excellent teacher of Japanese, and um, she was just known throughout the undergraduate population as being such an amazing teacher with such an amazing program. And I didn't at that time really have any connection with Japan. I didn't had never been there. I knew nothing about it. Um, but in my literature classes, I was doing more Western literature, like French and English literature and the literature concentration. And this is probably part of the historical development of comparative literature overall as a field, is that there had started to be a really intense awareness that the field of comparative literature might start to be called the field of comparative European literatures, the way it was being practiced. Like there was absolutely, there was very little attention to East Asian literatures, to um, literatures of other places. And at the same time, trends in multiculturalism and post studies and things like that were coming up. So there was kind of like this question being asked in my Western literary studies, well, what would happen to these ideas that we're trying to study cross-culturally if we brought in, pick an example, you know, something else. But if we brought in an Asian literature into this conversation, what would happen to the conversation? And so um, I didn't know which non-Western literature to study, but everyone knew that the Japanese program was so fabulous. So I began to study Japanese that way and to travel to Japan. And then there was something called the Japan America Student Conference that um, is a really great program. I recommend to anyone listening or to their undergrads. Um, as a place where Japanese and American students run a kind of seminar together and explore topics they're interested in. So just gradually, little by little, not to mention that it was the bubble period in Japan. So there was a really good, um, good economics for getting fellowships to go to Japan and stuff like that. Although there weren't, most of the my classmates were trying to study words like keizai masatsu, um, like economic friction, rather than, um, you know, wanting But the teachers had big minds and had us read Aktagawa also. And um, so that was kind of like my gradual entry into Japanese studies.
1: It's so interesting how um, how many people that I speak with, myself included, got into East Asian studies in some respect, and you know, for to study some field as a result of a language program or language teachers. Um, it's so this is a little plug for the funding of language programs <laughs> far and wide because they really do help shape um, and and sort of feed interest in the development of a field.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there was also a program um, called the College Women's Association of Japan where a bunch of educated Japanese women got together and decided they wanted to fund some feminist scholars to study Japan comparatively, like in a feminist or gender studies or sexuality studies kind of vein. And at the time I was pretty young and I had no idea what I was really going to study, but that um, sounded like a good idea. So that was part of how I was able to go over to Japan for my first year of study there. That's great. So if you, you know, if you think about that, like that I had no idea where I was heading with this, but there was, there was this group of people with a big vision that were creating structures and institutions to allow thing, things like this to happen.
1: Now, even though you say you started off with not a clear sense of where exactly you were going, there's a really clear connection between um, this project that we're going to talk about for the rest of our time today and your previous work. Now, you mention um, in the at the beginning of the book that this project started out as an exploration of the relation between performance and memory in Japanese experiment. Well, um, as in Japanese experimental. In Japanese Surrealism, right? Previous work on Surrealism. So this work looks at um, performance in experimental theater of the 60s and 70s, but this grows out of your previous work in Fault Lines, Cultural Memory and Japanese Surrealism. Okay, so can you talk a little bit about um, the transition between your previous work on Surrealism and how you went from or how you came from that subject to um, the current project that this book explores today?
0: Yeah. Some people sometimes talk to me about that with a way in which, you know, like, wait, you were going to be a specialist on the twenties and thirties. You were going to be like a Taisho early show up person. And now you're studying post-war and what, what happened there? You know, we lost you in the Taisho period or something like that. And maybe I'll be going back eventually, but um, there's a, uh, I guess, you know, in the epilogue to my last book, I wrote about Butoh dance and there was a very formative experience that happened to me when I was in Japan that first year on that College Women's Association of Japan scholarship with uh, in the Inter-University Center studying language um, in Yokohama that someone hooked me up with Ono Kazuo, the buto dancer, um, his workshops. And he was giving these workshops up in the hills of um, Yokohama um, where he would just kind of stand up and do a kind of like talk jazz talk for, um, maybe 10 or 15 minutes. Like I call it jazz talk, but he would just kind of talk a poem and he would just say things. And for me, so that happened to me that I, that I started going to these weekly workshops, um, very early in uh, my time learning language. So I didn't really know Japanese yet, but there was sort of this moment that clicked where I'd taken it for two and a half years, but I wasn't quite fluent yet. And I need to know what he's saying. I need to know every word. I need to understand every word of this amazing sort of impromptu poem thing. And there was a guy there that actually was the translator, a really nice guy who every like five minutes would say one sentence of translation. And so I started to um, take over and be the tsuyaku, the sort of, Simultaneous interpreter um, for Onokazu in the workshops, but he didn't actually let anyone just watch. You had to dance. So I started also dance, dancing buto at that time, and um, and so that was actually sort of the spark. That and sort of moving outward from that of really wanting to know. Well, when did buto start, and what you know what happened else in the '60s? And I started to meet this group of artists who were all. You know, this time was um, in the in the 80s, late 80s at this time. But um, I was meeting all these people who traced the origins of their amazing and often very private artistic practices. You know, people who on the outside just had like sponsors or were freelancers doing some kind of nice thing in the bubble era to support themselves. But at home had these amazing artworks and were doing these whole amazing um you know, practices, art practices. And so that, those were the people that started my interest in this period. Like, when did you get the idea to do this? How did you, what social formation created the idea of like being an artist in this particular way? Who did you read? And so everyone was super generous, giving me, um, giving me things to read and, you know, Bijutsu Techo from that time and from more recently. And, you know introducing me to a whole new world of french literature that i wasn't familiar with from my studies of french literature outside of japan but the ones you know people like rene Char, who were people in america and anyway so that's a very long story to say that even my first book was actually i was already interested in the 60s at that time and when i went back to yale to study for graduate school after my time in japan it seemed like I should try to find out even further back what kind of history of the avant-garde existed, Who? where did it all come from even even earlier. And there was also a certain feeling in sort of East Coast academia that the 60s was a little too recent um, to work on and that it was better to work on the early 20th century if you were going to be sort of a respectable literature scholar. Mm-hmm. And you, you should know things from before. So there's not like a... Um, Coercive push, but just like a a sense that that would be more appreciated, and so I chose to go earlier at that time. Now the '60s seems like a really long time ago, but you know, I guess in the '80s it wasn't a very long time ago in the '90s. So um, that was so. So I was going back, tracing these um, avant-garde and surrealist poets whose work was so important, even in the '60s. So even in my first book. I, I kind of look back and, fo- and forth between those two times. But I knew when I was finishing that book that I needed to move into the 60s and see what happened with bodies and performance. And um, so it was already kind of inherent in that project in a certain way.
1: It's, that's so interesting. And it also it's really interesting because you mentioned jazz earlier, and that'll actually come into the story later on in the book in a kind of tangential way when looking at um, some of the films. So I think this is it's really interesting to hear how this is all really very much part of an organic whole, it seems, in terms of um, your interest. So great. Thank you very much. Now, um, the book itself, this is a a good time to get into the book itself, it looks at moments in the arts in Japan, and moments um, is a very deliberate term, so I'll ask you a little bit about that as we get into this, Um, but moments in the arts in Japan from the 60s to the early 80s, and really focusing on the 60s and 70s for um, the majority of the treatment. Now, it moves through from works of experimental theater to film, video, buteau dance, as you um, just mentioned, and finally photography, but also looks um, along the way at other kinds of media, so poems and essays and and other forms of text. Um, now, this is, it's so it's a fascinating book. Uh, piece of uh, text and piece of literature and analytic study that really is trying, as I read this, um, and I think very successfully managing to not hold these kinds of um, boundaries of form or boundaries of discipline stable in looking at larger phenomena and larger sort of um, emergences within a cultural moment. So it's, I think um, it was fascinating in that respect. Okay, so here um, is where I'm going to ask you um, to start sort of developing background here. Now, the temporal frame of the book pivots on a distinction that may not be familiar to listeners or to readers who don't have a background in Japanese history, and that's a distinction drawn between Shingeki and post-Shingeki theater. So in order to kind of set the foundation for looking at what this period of post Shingeki theater um, looks like. Can you talk a little bit for our listeners about um, these concepts? What is um, Shingeki uh, theater and post Shingeki theater and what's um, kind of the major difference between the two?
0: Okay. So, um, so Shingeki um, literally means new theater. Shin is new and Geki theater. Um, And that um, term was used. So, it's already framing itself as a new form of theater that in itself was avant garde in its time, like in the 20s when um, the Tsukiji Little Theater was founded, um, and people in Japan started to depart from conventions of shimpa, the kind of melodramatic traditional plays, or kabuki, or all the forms of more traditional theater that had been um, central to. Um, Japanese theatrical tradition up to that point, also Rakugo, and um, began to do things like Ibsen and Chekhov, translating plays from the West and, um, and doing it in a style that was very much Western-y style, like without full face mask makeup, but more sort of natural makeup, also very much sitting on chairs and drinking tea in from Western Cups, doing things that you would do in those plays. And at the same time, there was also, um, a, there was a movement in film in parallel, trying to develop a, an indigenous or to, a local Japanese filmmaking um, tradition that would be, that would stand up to what was going on in the West and a local indigenous theatrical playwriting tradition that would, so there was sort of a, um, Let's make Japanese theater, you know, as good as Western theater. Let's write our own plays. And so there was there were all these new plays being written in that style with dialogue, you know, based on a script. And um, there were also many avant-garde types of things, sort of more constructivist works being done or mixes of the two were being done in the um, earlier 20th century. Um, but by the time we reached the post-war, those forms have come to seem to the youth quite um, heavily institutionalized, quite conventionalized. Shingeki doesn't sound like a new kind of theater to them anymore. It sounds like old theater. It sounds like um, you know, realist acting with feelings that are expressed, you know, that, you, that are kind of Stanislavskian um, acting techniques and things like that, which are very well-developed. There are these amazing actresses and stuff like that. So, but very institutionalized, very kind of bourgeois. So, um, young people in colleges, like at Waseda or um, others, um, started to want to do something different with theater. They had started to hear about Genet, they started to hear about Beckett and get those things translated and Um, there were, there was a sense that they needed to rebel against those structures of quote unquote psychological realism. So to them, Shingeki meant psychological realism in some form. And they wanted it to go maybe back is the wrong word, but to re inhabit the idea of a presentational, spectacular, embodied theater. So post Shingeki is sort of the, push away from that psychological realist Shingeki towards, um, you know, crazy acrobatics and um, dialogues that almost make no sense and huge fragmentation. And there's still something going on that you could say has a psychological realism to it, that it captures the crazy fragmentation of the psyche. You know, that's realist in a different way, but, um, but Um, They were just interested in creating something completely new, completely different, and sometimes also using more traditional scripts in a very different way, re-embodying them in a different way. So people like Suzuki Tadashi were very central to that. Um, Betsyaku Minoru, who was writing these incredible scripts at the time. Zo is one of the first um, plays that kicks off that post-Shingeki movement at Waseda and uh, later Terayama Shuji is someone who becomes really important to my writing about post-Shingeki, even though um, the late David Goodman, who's sort of the most prominent scholar on post-Shingeki, didn't really like Terayama. So he didn't really want, he's the one who actually coined the English term post-Shingeki. And he didn't really want to include Terayama in the canon of post-Shingeki. He liked post Shingeki to be much more cleanly leftist theater. Very, you know, like explicitly political. Totally. Karajiro was good with him. Very explicit political theater. You know, Karajiro is someone who had Red Tent Theater in Shinjuku. And, um, and people, uh, Oka Makoto is someone who really interested him. And David Goodman is someone who, um, himself participated in these movements. He created a journal called Concerned Theater Japan um, in English and Japanese, a bilingual journal in 69, 70, 71. Um, at the time, he was in Japan doing this stuff. Also, Carol Fisher Sorgenfry should be mentioned because she was also in Japan around that time working with Terayama directly. And um, But anyway, so David Goodman didn't really want Terayama in that canon, but over the years, because I kept bringing up Teriyama in my conference presentations and stuff, he gradually, reluctantly was willing to admit that Tereyama was in a, a different way and always exceptionally also part of Post Shingeki.
1: And this is, uh, for our listeners, the, uh, Teriyama goes on to be really kind of the, the focus or a, a really central focus of the book in um, a really fascinating way. And having read this, I can't imagine not thinking of him in the context of uh, post-Shingeki theater now. He's sort of this emblematic, fish-biting, uh, amazing figure <laughs> for me. Uh, is, was that him or was that a... you well,
0: Right. That Teriyama, I'm not sure I myself meant Teriyama to be so central, but he has this really creepy quality in your psyche that the more you see him, the more you keep thinking about him. So,
1: And this is, you know, this is actually a great opportunity to get right to him. Um, in fact, the, um, you, you mentioned that he's sort of creepy and uh, ghostly. He actually begins at, in the introduction of the book. By dying, or rather, the report of him dying is something that begins explicitly. The first sentence um, of the first paragraph of the introduction: Terayama is dying. This is really the end, and this is a quote um, from 1983 that you give us to open up this story because he's so central um, to the book, and he's such a fascinating character. Um, can you get us started here by talking a little bit about him? Who was he? Um, what was? Um, why was he so important to the story, and what drew you to him in particular? in the first place
0: it's interesting to try to trace how i started to get interested in terayama because he does have this kind of quality of just being everywhere When um, you start to look at these works um terayama is interesting and he may have been part of the inspiration of the cross-medial focus of my own research you know people like you have just so um clearly noted how this work doesn't stick with just literature or just film or just photography. And if you describe who Teriyama was, he was born in Aomoriken, um, and he, there's actually a really nice Teriyama um, museum um, there that I recommend people go to to learn more about his work. Um, but he um, came to Tokyo and um, worked in so many different forms. He started out as a poet. Um, but he, um, he was working in somewhat traditional forms, but breaking. So he actually was connected with Kitazono Katsue, the surrealist poet. Um, he was, had a big enough ego that in high school he was already willing to write this very famous, very established surrealist poet, Kitazono, in his uh, VOW, his VOW um, magazine and send a poem in and become part of the sort of in-group of that Coterie magazine. And um, he was winning um, prizes and get it, creating scandals. Was Were his poems too much plagiaristic because they were so intertextual, citational? Or were they the radical newest thing ever? His work is so deeply imbricated with everything around him that it's sometimes, it's like, wait, was he just kind of lifting this? Or um, And his autobiography is full of legends and sort of errors and um people are constantly trying to figure out what the real true story of terayama was and which parts of his autobiographical writings were true and not true but he wound up working in um, most significantly in theater in experimental cinema and also as a boxing critic and he also made these this postcard art and um so many different fields, you can find a little piece of tarama and also the writer writing essays, publishing books. Um, so he had, he had a really broad range across media and didn't seem to stand on that distinction, which is actually something that I noticed also in my um, artist friends that I met when I went to Tokyo way back when that they tended to sort of do pictures and poetry and pottery and film and it wasn't like oh, you had to be trained in this to do it or something. It was like your your vision was what was important, and you could bring it into all these different places. So
1: that's great. And just in um, describing him, a few of the things that you mentioned really struck me because they'll go on to become really central themes in different ways for the rest of the chapters. Um, just mentioning the importance of some idea of the authentic or a concern with an idea of the authentic, a practice of citation, um, which we'll see coming up later, and also the um, the importance of a, a practice that integrates and an idea of fragments and fragmentariness. And you mentioned this also earlier, and this is also kind of um, implied in the, the notion of a moment um, that you're uh, bringing up in the book and in, even in the title in the book itself so i think in many ways um, he really this is a great figure to open with and this is really emblematic of many of the concerns that'll come up um in different forms and in different um sort of ways and the work of different people throughout the book
0: yeah there's well, a whole um Kereyama has a way of pushing towards authenticity or asking for immediacy in his rhetoric. So he always wants everything to be a direct encounter and an immediate, you know, transformation, but his actual practice is so much more um, mediated, fragmented, um, repeated, intertextual, much more. So seeing the tension between those two things in Teriyama, I think winds up becoming emblematic of what a lot of artists in this period were struggling with and working with rhetorically. And conceptual. Stuff like that. The culture of the copy and, you know, what was happening, there were Xerox machines, you know, the whole idea of copiedness was incredibly um, fascinating. And what did it mean that photographs and art could be replicated in a particular way that wasn't so much in the concept of art uh, before that, that set of concerns was really important to art historians as well.
1: Mm -hmm. And this is also just personally um, coming from uh, the field of history, which is my home discipline and and sort of the the kind of um, conceptual concerns that I tend to think about tend to um, be in the practice of a historian. And all of these um, or the the imbrication of all of these concepts, the the authentic practices of citation, um, the relationship of language and the possibilities of language for from telling a story and for sort of constructing memory, um, working with fragments. Um and the kinds of texts also that for the, the scholar of these kinds of documents and or these kinds of moments, and we'll get to that in a minute, come out of these sorts of performances. This is all, I think, really fascinating also to think about in the context of the kind of work um, that a historian does. And so I think this is really conceptually opening um, for, for people who sort of practice the craft of history as well. So that's just, uh, as a side note, I really got a lot out of this for that reason. Now, um, this is, so this introduction in the chapter introduces Teriyama, introduces his troop, um, talks about the importance of the idea of an encounter, um, which also will be important later on. Um, and also um, situates this within a broader context of the 1960s. Now, um, very briefly, because you mentioned that previous work on this kind of um, set of actors, or if not the same actors, then experimental arts and experimental theater in this period, has focused on the importance of the political. Um, and in different ways, an engagement with or refusal to explicitly identify with a political agenda or a political agency comes up in this period throughout the works that you look at, um, can you very briefly, if pos- if this is a reasonable request, and it may not be, um, situate what's happening for Tadayama and his troop within sort of the wider political and social sphere of the 60s? You mentioned um, 60s protests and things. Are there any really important aspects of this um, social, cultural, political sphere um, that readers um, sort of would benefit from knowing about in order to understand how to situate this within that larger social, political context? Yeah.
0: So I guess, um, you know, usually people talk about the 1960 protest against the Japan-U.S. Security Treaty as a really crucial, formative moment. And it probably influenced me as well in choosing that as my starting point. Because the truth is that in my previous book I mentioned Ken Kobo, the experimental workshop of the late 50s and so you already could talk about the rise of a lot of intermedial and experimental artworks in the late 50s and you, you would no one would protest and say you started too early or something like that but for me because of that particular moment of 1960 um and that so many you know also um the, um, the Sogetsu Art Center had already begun its activities in the late 50s. And by 1960, the moment of the, um, the sort of most famous or la- among the largest um, protests against the Japan-U.S. Security Treaty, everyone, there was no one who could avoid doing something about that, either um, saying that it was futile and that it was pointless or critiquing the... Um, way in which the different factions were not cohering well enough or um, jumping in and saying, this is what we need. We need direct action. So the whole idea of direct action, which is so important throughout the 60s in the arts in America and in Japan and in Europe, um, is intimately linked in its as an idea with the idea that there are these protests and there are these students taking to the streets and getting their bodies hurt, you know, and you see on TV and also not to mention the role of the media and TV and sort of making the consciousness of these things um, really available to many, many people. Um, So, you know, just seeing people bashing down the doors of the diet building and, um, you know, hearing about injuries and hearing about um, then memorializing events and, you, um, I think that although Terayama himself was mostly disengaged from the actual protests and he really protested against a good guy, bad guy, kind of cops and robbers um, narrative, that narrative seemed wrong to him and that, you know, if you just claim you're a good guy and the police are the bad guy, then you don't understand that you've internalized these incredibly um, powerful structures of, um, domination in your own psyche and that you're actually obeying, even by disobeying, you're within a very oversimplified narrative that um, needs to be questioned and needs to be delved into on the level of sexuality, on the level of family, on the level of saying, like, I love my mother and father and I'm loyal to them to the end, but I hate, um, you know, the police. There, it's too, it's that's too simple for him. Um, so, and plus, he was very sick, so he was in the hospital quite a lot and was unable to participate in some of these things as well um, at times. So that particular note came from a time when he was in the hospital while protests were taking place. So going up through the 60s, people usually speak about um, the high growth economics in Japan. So that up, going up through the 60s, by the time, 1964 is the Olympics um, in Japan. So there's this huge push to clean up to and clean up the streets and kind of make Japan presentable to the West. And that's something that comes up um, very often in artists' works, that they're um, in some ways making fun of this kind of sanitizing impulse that, um, or just kind of noticing the shame and the, um, the dark side of what is implied by the need to constantly clean up things and rebuild. And many of the avant-garde artists are actually interested in the dark and the dirty and the smelly and all the things that are trying to be shoved aside in the preparation for 1964 Olympics. And then as you go up through the sixties in this kind of incredibly schematic, um, and you're a historian, so you could in something different that happened. But, um, you know, going in 68, 69, and up through that, that time, there's an incredible emphasis on technological development, on um, economic um, development in Japan, so that Japan's growth economically um, is one of the highest in the world at that time. And so you could say, that thanks to that prosperity, there is some extra slack created for things like art, and for people to live as artists, they have enough food, They you know that there's there's wiggle room in the world for people to come and see plays and support the arts. And so that's kind of a nice aspect of it. And something that I noticed also very much in the bubble period when I was there, because it was in some ways paralleled that kind of sense of, whoa, you know, artists have lots of bills in their pockets. That's a lot for an artist to carry around, you know. <laughs> so, and that, that allows a certain amount of freedom and a certain amount of leeway to create art. Um, and at the same time, I wouldn't want, probably in my book, I didn't emphasize enough how um, how fluid the boundaries are between commercial um, studio productions and um, these avant-garde underground productions. There's actually quite a lot of movement of every artist between the kind of studio or publisher run or corporate connected um, art forms and um, which they are using to support themselves and the sort of underground stuff, which is also probably supported in most cases. Like if you think of Sogetsu Art Center, um, you know, supported by Teshigahara's um, father, Teshigahara Sofu, you know, because of his um, empire his son is able to launch this incredible art venue. So there's a lot of fluidity, a lot of the illustrators and a lot of the artists and all the photographers in the photography section are struggling with what it means that the mass media exists, that they are part of the mass media um, apparatus in their photography, commercial photography practices of some kind, even journalistic photography practices. And yet they want to do... The anonymous photograph. They they want to make a photograph that it doesn't matter who took it and nobody paid for it and it just I don't know somehow captures a fragment of something. So they're they're struggling with that very fluidity of boundary between their own um, implication in that c- high commercial capitalism and their the art practices that they all claim are disconnected from it and are in protest against it and are trying to critique it. Um, but, they, but there's quite a bit of movement between the two.
1: Mm-hmm. Great. And the um, bringing up the fluidity of boundaries um, brings us, I think, very nicely into the next um, part of the book, and the, the uh, first chapter, which looks at one of the um, works and one of the, the f- uh, figures that you mentioned briefly before. This is Betsuyaku Minoru. Um, and his play, Zo, uh, which is from 1962, um, and which launched or is said to have launched the post-Shingeki movement. This is a fascinating um, account. This is a, a fascinating-seeming play, which I've never had the benefit of seeing, but I completely want to learn everything about now after having read this chapter. Um, can you speak a little bit to... Who, to this figure and to this play in particular and why it's so important um, for the themes that you're writing about in the book for listeners who may not yet have had a chance to read the book.
0: So. To me, um, and what sometimes gets called, and this is probably an oversimplification, the Beckett the because his, his scripts are so interested in language itself. In the density of language, in the movement and flow of dialogue. And, um, so he was a Waseda student, um, right around the same time that the famous director Suzuki Tade- Tadashi was also a Waseda student. So they were working together, um, although Betsyaku dropped out. Um, but he, um, so as a student, as a college student, and college students can take heart that your college plays can go down later, in special circumstances at least, um, that they worked together and so he was um, he was part of this group that was working at the what called the Wasida Show. it was called the Wasida Theater and then became the Wasida Little Theater. And for me, Betsuyaku is a fascinating figure who describes his own practice of writing at a department store one time and I got to interview him about it. He still had that who kind of floats through the city and his ears are open to the fragments of dialogue that are coming from whoever's talking around him and that that's how he would write would go be to go to a cafe and just sort of he didn't want the play to be about sub people with realities that clash in a regular conflict and he felt so to me, it's interesting that at the very origin of the post-Shingeki movement, we're already in a space where the idea of asserting yourself is kind of already in question. It's not like we start out characters that assert themselves and then we reach doubt in the 70s. That's the narrative of the 60s is in the 60s, everybody knew what they were doing. We, we knew what was bad. We were protesting it. And then in 1970, everyone lost heart in the um when the Japan U um, S security treaty was renewed yet again, after more protests and the Vietnam war and blah, blah, blah. So the usually people end like evens in 1970, Osaka big, big moment of sellout and cooptation, but there's this huge ambivalence about sellout and cooptation and what is really worth doing anyway. And, um, how do we know which direction to go in is already so deeply in Betsyaku's formative plays of the early sixties. And so that's something that I wanted to really take notice of. And particularly in ZO where it's about the aftermath of the atomic bombing and the character, um, the main character is an invalid who's affected by, he's a hibaksha, a victim of radiation who's affected by atomic bomb um, disease, and he's in the hospital. And so it's very explicitly has historical quality, but it also, um, but it's also, and he wants to show their witness, but the play itself frames him and his nephew as um, his nephew doubting that this is at all possible. And, and himself also doubting maybe he isn't up to the task of conveying what really happened. So maybe that for me to the sort of original formulation of the book about Marie and its expression or the passing down through the generations, trying to express historically from one generation to another and what is expressible or, um, what to try to express and explain in the present, what the past means and how the next generation never quite takes it right. Maybe you're just showing off or something. <laughs>
1: Now this, this actually, um, mentioning his working habits, and you mentioned later in the book that this um, fact of him actually sitting in cafes and incorporating chance conversations that he overhears into his scripts, this raises for me one of the um, really fascinating aspects of this kind of work, um, which is the textual inscriptions that come out of these kinds of performances. So in the next chapter, you talk um, more about Tedayama's performances and so much of this kind of experimental theater was bound up with um, the embracing of spontaneity, of, um, sort of bringing audience, bringing non-planned audience elements into the actual performance and the actual um, happening or encounter, um, this raises, at least from the perspective of um, a reader, really interesting kinds of questions and ways of thinking about what it means to study this from the perspective of a scholar in the 21st century now. And so in, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the, the nature of the Scripts of these performances as texts that you study to get a sense of what happened um, in these performances. And so, can you speak a little bit, ba- a little bit, to that process for you? How does the nature of this source material and its relation to this kind of ephemerality of this performance shape the kind of story that you're telling here and what is it like to um, both access and also work with these kinds of inscriptions to create this uh, story of ephemeral performance?
0: And it speaks to the kind of materiality of the which I think about. um, I
1: think if you just if you just let that hang, it might be the yeah. The microphone might work a little bit better. Yeah.
0: Anyway, um, I, that's a great question because what we're left with are really um, counts. You know, text accounts, either newspaper reviews or um, or critical writings about these performances, or in some cases, and the cases where I um, where I do a or textual reading, there will be a video that was taken at one particular performance and I'll tend to um, use that, as. but knowing that actually it was reiterated multiple times and each time would be different. There's even in certain cases with Terayama video as the script, like the case of 100 Years of Solitude Hyakunen no Kodoku, there's a video with a book the script book actually completely perfectly match the video. Like it was taken maybe from a very slightly different version. Um, uh, and some, um, there was some direct interaction with artists and artists' relatives um, that was required of me in order to obtain um, sometimes pirated um, materials that I could work on um, or material that's very rarely in circulation. Um, and um, And the So, there,
1: there is a difficulty
0: for me around telling the stories because I am very much trained in textual reading and close reading and kind of hermeneutic reading where we take the object, you know, the work as a kind of a text to look at. There are certain benefits in trying to understand the philosophical ramifications of what's going on at a deep level and not just skimming over, over the surface with the pieces that would have common in every performance. So I tend to delve into actual dialogues that are um, written down after the fact from often improvised performances, but the improvised performance, sometimes there would also be impro- improvisation very on the level of the text. So the authorship is not so much Terayama as his troupe who are making up some of these words. And um, so that that is pose difficulty and I try to be sensitive to that both on the level of production that the production would change and shift from time to time and I have a lot of notes that you may or may not have noticed where I'm saying like in New York like this Amsterdam it was like that and I'm working on the Tokyo version or something and if you want to hear more about the Amsterdam version read Steve Bridgley. and if you want to hear about New York version, read Carol Sorgenfry. and so it's kind of that we have multiple people working on multiple versions of it um, in which the story comes out slightly differently mm-hmm. in katayama like in um, in the story mink Marie um, Kegawa no mari but um, so for me I need to balance that so on the level of production the fact that there were improvisations but still wanting to take seriously the sort of close reading of the version that I'm working on and then at the same Realizing that at the level of reception, often, like 100 people's politics, there are these five stages, and a real human, regular, normal audience member wouldn't actually be able to absorb all the stuff that's going on at the same time. Sometimes it's sequential and it would take turns, but sometimes there would be things happening simultaneously or too far away for you to really see, and that. Circus-like quality was something that Terayama was very much going for as a philosophical expression of his um, point of view about um, about experience itself, that there's always sort of too much going on for any one individual to grasp. The only way to grasp all to pull together the collective memories of all the people, which you can sort of never do, even though it would be
1: Right. And that actually, that presents a really fascinating kind of problem for the person trying to study this because when the very nature of the product is meant to be fragmentary, right? When it's sort of um, embedded in the very nature of the performance that no single audience member should or is, is going to be able to experience the whole work as a totality. And in fact, the whole work what that even looks like means something different depending on where you're sitting, then how do you, from the, from our perspective now, write about this in the spirit that actually kind of preserves that or takes that seriously, but also gives an account of it for a reader who wants to know the whole story, right? So it's just, it's, it's fascinating to think about this from the perspective of methodology and the perspective of um, our positionality with respect to these texts. So. please. We- a little
0: perverse in a certain way to go so slowly and so carefully on something that was so improvised, so quick, so, and so full of accident. Um, you know, that like when I um, interviewed um, the Butoh dancer Tamano Koichi, when I was do, doing my writing on the other Butoh dancer who he worked with as a disciple, Hijikata Tatsumi, I was reading these writings that are now published in a zenshu and, and Tamano was like, he was just fooling around. What he's word He was he was probably drunk. I don't know. Like I don't think you have to worry about that.
1: This is let's actually I mean there's a ton of material um, for listeners who haven't had a chance to read the book, or even for, for people who have, there's a ton of material in these early chapters in this first part of the book um, that goes into much more detail about these plays, about experimental performance, about Tediyama. Um But in, in the spirit of sort of moving to some of the later material in the limited time that we have left, let's actually move to Butoh dance um, for a moment. Um, this is actually, um, this marks... Um, part of a series of studies in part three of the book. So part two of the book um, is a kind of theoretical interlude that looks at theories of encounter. And these are theories of encounter that span... Um, Uh, some of the people we've been talking about, some others that also bring in some of the theoretical interlocutors like Benjamin, um, who is so central to the way um, the the actors here, and I mean sort of historical actors, not just uh, literal actors, are thinking about issues of encounter and um, embodiment um, and crime and contagion and all kinds of other things. So after that we get to part three, which looks at experimental film, photography, dance. And other kinds of writings um, in a way that interrogates or that looks at how all of these different media kind of work together to interrogate notions, among other things, of home, of origin, of return. Okay, so Buteau um, f- features in one of the chapters in this section. And so since you mentioned it, um, let's talk a little bit about that. First of all, what is Buteau? Uh For listeners who may not know anything about this, can you talk a little bit about Butoh and why it's so central um, to this set of issues that you're grappling with in the book? It's
0: a form of um, experiential dance. Um, sometimes... Uh, People trace the origins of it to Ono Kazuo, um, the the dancer who I studied with, and Hijikata Tatsumi, who had already died by the time I arrived in Japan. Their collaborations, as well as Ono, who was much older, his son, Ono Yoshito, who's still practicing Buto today. Um, and then there were several generations of Buto dance. There's some scholarship by Susan Klein a long time ago, all the way through. Um, Bruce Baird, more recently, writing a whole book on Hijikata and um, trying to trace the history of um, people. Usually, talk about Wigman and um, the German expressionist dancer and her influence on Japanese modern dance techniques. So, some of um, like Hijikata um, and you know were um, trained in Western dance styles, but then they were innovating this much more improvisational, much more messy style of dance that involved in, um, looking into violence, um, looking into, um, sort of the dark underside of um, bodily excretions and things like that. Um, and so, um, in late 1959 is usually sort of posited as the origin of, um, of, um, and, um, so what, there are multiple generations of Butoh dancers, so most might have um, Sangha the group that paints themselves all in white. These days, when people think of Butoh, they think of, um, people whose body, heads are shaved and whose bodies are painted all in white and who are moving very, very slowly on stage in a very aesthetically beautiful manner. Mm-hmm. And maybe... From the ceiling, beautiful, organized, and well-produced light from the side, maybe pink. But um, Butoh that I'm talking about from this period is much messier, much um, sort of looser in its choreography. And the same time I look at writing Hijikata all through his life, um, which he also has these wonderful Butoh notebooks, which some of which are now available. Um, To in sort of reproduction to purchase where he would stick paintings and write scribbles next to it and kind of make these little collages that were the generative um, source of some of the ideas for the dance. So to me, this dance is also deeply textual. And I totally can understand that people would want to study it mainly as a bodily movement form. But what I'm doing is a little bit um, different in this chapter, which is studying the right around Butoh, the sort of ideas of dance and bodies that come out through Hijikata's writings, which to me are kind of like a linguistic dance and um, a textual dance or a poem, kind of like the ones that I was talking about with Kazuo Ono when he would stand up. He would generate the dance straight out of a bunch of talking and moving, moving and talking, and moving and bodies talking was um, just all of a piece. It all went together. And so today when you watch a Butoh performance, um, you might no idea what's going on what the people are doing but a lot of times if you go to the rehearsal um i've done sometimes translations for rehearsal and um and they'll say okay now waving at the moon cats are waving at the moon and they're like oh <laughs> I, that's interesting <laughs> and that the blue light has to come on at a certain moment and um so there'll be there'll always be like this this um, kind of architecture architectonics of language and metaphoric imagery that dance is built around,
1: and that actually sounds the the idea of. Um bringing up an architectonics of imagery and the relationship of this kind of movement to a textual form of some sort also um, brings in the other two chapters in this section. And I know we don't have a whole lot of time to talk about this, but there are, um, for listeners, there's a, there are two really beautiful chapters that bookend this. One looks at um, experimental film, two films from the 1960s and one from later in the 60s, that trace post-war representations of the A-bomb, but trace it in ways that really explicitly move away from a kind of explicit visual representation that fetishizes the image of the mushroom cloud. Um, and another chapter that looks at um, a, the photographic experiments in a particular journal called Provoke, again, late 1960s, early 1970s, again, as a way of playing with um, different um, modes of figuration um, and, and not necessarily sort of explicitly clear figuration of objects, of bodies, of sort of ways of representing landscape. And all of these three chapters um, together are working to sort of build this polymedia picture of artists at this particular moment or performers at this particular moment um, c- who are concerned with very common themes, right? Or it Themes in common, perhaps not common themes. And these are themes of homecoming, of return, of origins. So, as we, before we um, wrap up and I ask you a little bit about um, what comes next, can you speak a little bit um, to this theme? Um, and you can feel free to bring in whatever your most favorite works maybe that you mentioned in this section or that immediately come to mind um, in, in talking about that.
0: Okay. To talk about the theme of homecoming or return, it's very easy to be misunderstood because when people even use the word return, they think of something like the return to Japan, Nihon E no Kaiki. Really scary. Um, you know, any kind of notion of home, notion of origins brings up a long history of nationalist engagement with we have to go back to the true spirit of Japan, you know, and crazy. And um, so I always need to sort of be very careful in even using those words to um, to outline how for these artists, the word or the idea of return or origin is always um, present, comes out, but it's always kind of pushed that we don't have to return to authentic as it really was. There's never a possibility of getting back to that really was. But um, that we are we're still inventing and we're creating and we're using the idea as generative movement for something that ultimately comes out. So I always think um, of Kata's line about the origin is something that secretes itself. So you're like your skin sweating or something, that there's origin is not something you go back to, but origin is something that comes out without your actual control, it comes out of your pores or your nose or something even yuckier, uh, kind of squeezes itself out, kind of dark, yuck, and is present, but is not in any way about, is not only about the past, but is actually a movement toward the future. And so those kind of images are, you know, clearly we have um, structures like the emperor system, you know, that are um, t- return to origin in this very straightforward way. So to my mind, these artists are aware of those kinds of uses of the idea of return and they're taking them and they're doing something completely twisted and perverse with them that makes it like very comfortable for, for um, some readers to find out. (laughs) So I like that. And and for me, also, there's you know the idea in photography of indexicality of like that a photograph being in what way exactly connected to the reality, the thing that's photographed, and by provoke photographers swishing the camera, or um, but not as technique quite yet. Eventually, it becomes sort of framed as a style or technique that can be co-opted by the art market. But you know, blur, out of focus, and swishing movement of the camera and um, the body. Photographer being somehow implicated are ways of, um, of decentralizing and, and destabilizing the relation between the photograph and the world that's being photographed that is not to capture something of the real, but the real in this sort of ungraspable form.
1: Thank you. And for um, listeners who might be also interested in theories of materiality or ideas of materiality, ways of engaging um, objects in this period, there's also some really interesting material um, in these chapters that looks at sort of notions of um, these chapters and also the um, theoretical chapter right before this in part two, um, that looks, especially part two, actually, that looks at ideas of thinking about the body's engagement with, um, things and objects and how to sort of, um, how those ideas were played with, um, among, uh, artists and theoreticians in this period. So I'll just sort of put a plug for that, um, because it may not be obvious to, to readers who pick up the book, oh, I can learn something about what people thought about materiality and object. And that's very much here. And it's, it's a really stimulating part of this study. So, Miriam, there's a ton of material in here. Um, It's a wonderful book, and there's a ton of stuff that we didn't have a chance to talk about in our hour. Is there anything um, in particular at any level um, of discussion or of of thought um, that you'd like to mention for listeners who may not yet have had a chance to read the book and um, that we didn't necessarily have a chance to talk about? Yes, one of the things
0: that's been interesting for me since writing the book is how touch on seems to be um, gaining in prominence in Western museum culture. Like in the middle chapter about Encounter, I focus a lot on the artist Li Ufan. And um, just recently there was a huge exhibition, Li Ufan at the Guggenheim. And I talked about the movement Monoha, mm-hmm. um, of things, you know, which for me has such deep philosophical understanding both of materiality, thingness, and also of Encounter. Um, There's been some exhibitions like in um, Los Angeles and a new book coming out about Monoha. And Provoke also had kind of a touring exhibition after I wrote this chapter. Um, um, There's been a certain kind of recognition of how interesting these works are. And so since the, especially the Provoke chapter is one that was written sort of towards the end of the process of writing this book and leads more directly into my next projects. Um, so there's, for example, in November there will be um, an exhibition at the Museum of Mart of uh, Modern Art in New York called um, Tokyo and New Avant Garde, 1955 to 1970. Um, I have been helping with that um, works on the kind of intermedial quality of the experimental arts of this period. Um, and um, and that's that has a book coming out. And so I'm moving sort of in the direction of photography, uh, intermedial um, technological experiments and also um, cinema, cinema media studies kind of um, versions of these questions. And so it'll be, anyway, I just want to mention that because those are some of the things that are coming up and coming up.
1: That's great. Well, thank you so much. Um, Marianne, this has been a pleasure to talk with you. The book is wonderful. And as I mentioned, I think it's a kind of book that speaks across disciplines um, and that a lot of people who may not think of themselves as working in or being inherently interested in the arts or in modern Japan um, will really get a lot out of. And so thank you so much for making the time to talk with us today about it. Thank you. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks so much, and we will see you next time.